Well, we are moving now to Luke's gospel as we continue pursuing these penetrating questions of Jesus. By the way, it's not that we couldn't look at more in Mark. I think maybe we only paused to look at one. I might be wrong. I think maybe that's true. Of course, if you realize we have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those that sort of see it in a similar way, and uh, even though there are some differences in them, uh, so we're able to skip over some things because we did them already in Matthew. We come to Mark, look for a couple things maybe we can grab hold of and do the same thing with Luke. And then at the end of this series, when we come to the Gospel of John, we're going to find that we have actually uh, another resource because it's the fourth Gospel and the approach and viewpoint are just a little bit different. So we'll have at the end a few more questions as we round out this idea of penetrating questions of Jesus. This idea of the blind leading the blind and falling into the ditch, this is a very well-known reference and saying in the Bible, and of course it comes from Jesus. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that Jesus is the master teacher? Jesus could sit people down, multitudes of them in fact, and look at the hills above as he spoke to them the Sermon on the Mount, and see the city that is called Safed today up in the hills and know that his hearers would respond to this because he would say to them you know a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid and they knew exactly what that was because when nighttime fell you could see those lights up in the hills you couldn't miss it is it really any surprise to us that Jesus would be a master teacher after all he's the creator and designer of everything that we see around us so Jesus has a way of coming up with the most profound truths stated in the most simple terms. In this case, we have it as not a statement as it is in Matthew's gospel. Here, you can listen to the statement in Matthew's gospel, and we are going to turn to it in a minute. But it's couched as a statement. He says, let them alone, to the disciples, speaking of the Pharisees, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So there we have it as a statement. But here in Luke's gospel, it tells us in verse 39, and he spoke a parable unto them, and now you have it framed as a question. Can the blind lead the blind? And the expected answer is no. That's a grammatical thing that we don't see here, but that's true. Shall they not both fall into the ditch? And the expected answer is yes. And so the Lord uses something that anyone could identify with and that anyone could understand, and his teaching is simple. And he's the master teacher for that very reason, simple yet profound. That's a model for us all to strive for who attempt to preach or teach God's word. At any rate, one thing is immediately obvious, and that is that there are lots of occasions when we go to the Gospels and Jesus is dealing with blind people. A little while later, we're going to look at John chapter 9. There was a man there who was born blind, Later in the sermon, I'll reference blind Bartimaeus. There were a lot of people who were physically blind, and many of them Jesus healed, and that is a very well-known idea and theme in the Gospels. And of course, when you realize that all of those miracles that Jesus worked had their physical application and spiritual truth, then you're able to come to a place like where we are now. It's obvious enough that Jesus is now dealing beyond the literal, it's obvious that he's dealing with spiritual truth because he's talking to sighted people. And not only is he talking to sighted people, but for example, if you just look at some of the words that maybe we don't tend to focus on, we're told this in verse number 39, and he spoke a parable. And so we're 
alerted right from the very beginning that the meaning here is going to go beyond the literal. Jesus is talking about spiritual truth and he's talking about spiritual blindness and perception. For example, drop down to verse 41, you'll even find the word perception there. It says here, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the thing that is in thine own eye? So the idea of a lack of spiritual sight rather than a lack of physical sight, a lack of spiritual perception as opposed to a lack of physical perception. What's really interesting is, and we're going to, even though our text is here and we're going to spend probably more time here, we're going to scan the places that Jesus uses this spiritual figure to convey spiritual truth, spiritual blindness, a lack of spiritual perception. And we're going to find when we do this a simple observation that he at times uses this to address his disciples, in fact more often than not. It's more often than not that he talks to his disciples about this problem. But, of course, there are other times when he speaks to his detractors and he talks to them about that problem as well. And the Bible gives the answer for all of these. When we survey these, and basically you have them in Matthew 15. We'll look there in a moment. We have it in Luke, right where our text is now. We have it in Matthew 23. number of references there we'll see in a bit. And we have it in John chapter 9. And so when we do the the survey, I believe we can come up with at least three lessons, and I hope this will be of help and benefit to each of us here this morning. The first of those is expect criticism. You like criticism? Oh, don't you just stand in line for criticism? No, we don't much like criticism. But it often happens to us, and so often, if you think about this, it often comes to us as Christian people from sources out there in the unbelieving world. For example, earlier this week, there was a dedication of the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. A man was invited to pray on that occasion. You didn't know that Dr. Robert Jeffers, first of all, you didn't know he was doctor, did you? Secondly, you didn't know that he was on a fast plane to Jerusalem so he could dedicate and make the prayer. No, not really, not ours. But the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, delivered that prayer. Do you know that he was immediately called out by Mitt Romney as a hypocrite and a bigot? Did you read that in the news? Did you know that he was called a religious bigot by Mitt Romney? Oh, I love it, don't you? Someone calls someone else a religious bigot. It's almost like people like that talk out of both sides of their mouth, and Jeffers did such a tremendous job of pointing that out. Well, you know, this is what the church has believed for 20 centuries, that people are saved by grace through faith. It is by grace alone through faith. It is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and the church has preached and taught that for 20 centuries. So you didn't just call me a religious bigot. You just called everybody who has believed in the truth of the Bible for 20 centuries a bigot. They don't see it, it's just political capital or words that you can throw around. Kind of interesting to be called a religious fanatic. Have you ever been called a religious fanatic before? I'm just curious. Have you ever? You don't have to put your hand up, but that's fun, isn't it? 
I remember being called that one time. I've told you that story a few times. And here's the thing that I really kind of find interesting. It's not fun at the time. It stings many times. But I, it's a kind of interesting thought. Here you are. You're called a religious fanatic. Do you ever think how thin the line is between a fan and a fanatic? Do you ever stop to think that fan comes from fanatic? And so I'm being called a religious fanatic because I can get excited about what we just sang. I can get excited about listening to the feasters sing. I can get excited about all of that stuff. But I just came to the church here this morning and it's comfortable in here and it's not raining on me and there are friends around. I didn't have to go out to Beaver Stadium when it's 20 degrees and holler at the top of my lungs for 22 guys running around out there on the field, and I'm a fanatic? Oh, well. Then they call you a Bible thumper. Everyone called a Bible thumper before? Or have you ever heard anyone describe this church as holy rollers? Doesn't that just sort of grab you as a little bit odd? Holy rollers. Holy rollers because, that, first of all, they've never seen holy rollers. If you ever see them, you'll know it, believe me. And it isn't here. I promise you that. This is a rather staid, conservative con- congregation when it comes to that type of expression. But you hit the right buttons and you'll have people amen or say praise the Lord or something like that. You know, I've always said in this church you can express your emotion however much as long as it's real. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, some of it really, I think, helps us to know that God is speaking to hearts and folks are responding to that. But you can be called a Bible thumper because you express some happiness and joy at the spiritual truth you're hearing. And these other people are out here, some guy's got to take his shirt off in hopes that the camera will see him and put him on television set, the television set. Oh, well, we sort of live in a world of double standards, don't we? But here's what's happening if we turn to Matthew chapter 15. I hope I've got you in the mood to see this point. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 15 so that we can scan what's going on here for our point about expect criticism. Fellas, can we bring that up, that point, expect criticism? I think we have. Hopefully we have that. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. Let's have a look at that. Um, So here's the verse, and this is what I read earlier. Let them alone, Jesus says to his disciples, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. And of course, he's talking about the Pharisees here. He's talking to his disciples. Now, what provokes this? Well, Jesus gives this teaching. If you remember, um, his detractors, the Pharisees, found fault with Jesus' disciples because they transgressed. Wow, that's a high-powered word for what they did. I mean, this is, this is a C-class violation. This is nothing big. They ate with unwashing hands. I mean, that's big stuff. And these guys came along, and they found fault with Jesus' disciples, and Jesus called them hypocrites. He called them vain worshipers. He says, you're finding fault with my disciples. And yet, here you go out and by your same tradition that you say that my disciples are in violation of, you teach that if a man dedicates what he has in an attempt to circumvent the 
the commandment of God to honor thy father and mother, well, that money that he sort of put over here and dedicated to the temple, now it can't be used for the biblical idea of supporting his father and mother. He says, you know what, that's vain worship, that's hypocritical worship. You talk about a log in your eye and a speck in somebody else's eye. Here are people who are defaulting on spiritual obligation. Piety begins at home. And they're faulting these disciples because they're eating with unwashed hands. Well, when he gets done with that, I mean, he's not exactly sparing anything when he talks about this. He talks to them and finally you have, uh, the disciples are kind of concerned. Things are getting hot. So verse 12, have a look at that. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Verse 7, ye hypocrites. That is pretty potent. Ye hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And the disciples said, uh, Master, you might want to tone this down a little. Did you know that you offended the Pharisees? And Jesus' response was basically to sort of just make a spiritual point and to give some comfort to the disciples when he said to them, they're blind leaders of the blind. You can't expect much else. They don't understand spiritual truth. And so if they criticize me, don't be amazed when they criticize you. If they hate me, they'll hate you. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. So why are we so amazed, beloved, when this happens? And sometimes it happens and we hear it and you know, the guy that taught us in school that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, I, he fibbed. It's just not so. It really stings many times when people say this, but you have to realize and understand why it's happening. It'd be easy for us to respond in anger, wouldn't it? Be easy for us to lash out at people like that and tell them off. Some of them deserve it, but I'm not sure that we're furthering the kingdom of God by doing that. No, the issue or the answer is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where we have Jesus talking here in the text that we're looking at, and he says, well, the blind can't lead the blind, can they? They'll both fall into the ditch, won't they? And then in verse 40 says, he says, the disciple's not above his master. So if they responded this way to Jesus, if they defamed Jesus, if they persecuted Jesus, then they'll do that to his followers and we shouldn't be surprised for it. Now, I don't believe you should go out looking for it. I don't think you should be cantankerous. I don't think you should be an idiot. I don't think it's spiritual to go out and look for trouble. I'll promise you something. You don't have to look for trouble. All you have to do is make your best effort to do God's will and trouble will find you. And if you haven't had much of this lately, thank God for it or maybe ask a little bit about whether or not you're living as salt and light because that's the mission of the church and usually when the light shines, the bugs under the brick run because they don't like the light. It's kind of foreign to them. They live in a world of darkness and salt stings and wounds, and so we shouldn't go around self-righteous, and we shouldn't go around proud and boasting about how people say bad things about us, but if they do that, 
because we live as a sincere Christian and try to follow Jesus in our lives, well, we shouldn't be really so surprised that this kind of thing happens. This is what Jesus is saying to them. Um, It's interesting if you look over, and I'm going to read this to you, but the same thing Paul brings out in that verse that we have in the bulletin for today. Because he talks about the problem, the natural man. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And then he goes on in the next verse and says this, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. So, beloved, here's the thing. Just Jesus, I believe, gives this to us as an admonition. Uh, forewarned is forearmed. I believe he gives it to us also, though, as a comfort, just to realize that when this happens, uh, they did it to Jesus. It's because of a deeper spiritual problem. It's because they don't understand where you're coming from. They don't appreciate the spiritual truth that you love and live by because their eyes have never been opened, and we have to take that view And we have to go on and we have to pray for folks like that. You know, the best thing you can do when you have situations like this is to pray for those that persecute you and despitefully use you. Pray for them. Pray for them that God will open their eyes. A man by the name of Oliver Sacks, I'm sure is unknown to largely everyone here this morning, wrote an interesting book. This man is no profession of Christianity. He's, in fact, a neurologist, and he wrote the book entitled, the book's title is An Anthropologist on Mars. But he tells an interesting story that has some relevance to the point that I'm making now. He tells the story in the book about this man who had been blind from early childhood. His name was Virgil. And when he got to be 50 years old, though, a surgery opportunity became available for him that was hopefully going to restore his sight, give him the gift of sight. And it was successful to a degree, but both Virgil and Dr. Sachs found out a very interesting thing, and this is what he's telling the story and writing about in the book, that having the physical capacity for sight and really seeing aren't quite the same thing. He says that Virgil's first experiences with sight were actually very confusing to him, that he was able to make out colors and movements, but he was not able to arrange those colors and movements into a coherent picture. That was much more difficult for you. I remember that limbo, that period of conviction, that period of time in my life when God was working on pulling back the blinders and helping me to see what I really needed to see to come to Christ. You know, it, it, this is the thing, folks, and this is one of the reasons why the world comes up with all sorts of workarounds, and mostly, say, mostly the scheme of the world is works. And Christianity comes along and says, no works avail, nothing you can do for yourself. You're a sinner. You're lost and apart from God, and there is no hope except in Jesus Christ, but in him there is hope. And as the Spirit of God begins to pull back the blindness that has caused us to pursue life with the idea that somehow we can work up enough good works or something of this nature to please God. As the Spirit of God begins to work through the gospel to pull back those blinders and we begin to see that, no, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's not exactly the most pleasant period in your life. And I've seen this before, maybe you have too. I've been in services before, I've watched people hold on to pews and seen their knuckles nearly turn white. 
It's just like God is working and they don't want to let loose. God is working and they don't want to let loose. And I thank God for the day I did that and I thank God for the day you did that and it wasn't because I was smart and it wasn't because I could figure it out on my own. It was because God, by his Holy Spirit, worked in my blind heart to show me his wonderful son and the grace of God that I could have through him. And now you're back to the old slave trader. I once was blind, but now... I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And I don't see how you could sing that and not get excited. I just don't see that. I don't see how you could come to church this morning with any kind of spiritual preparation in your heart and sing that and not be excited, especially if you know anything about the, the story behind the song. Well, we have to hasten. Second thing is, and this is harder for us, this is where the Lord spends a good bit of time. We're back to our text, and this point is that we have to also avoid judgmentalism. Now, the Pharisees were judgmental. This is what the problem was where we were looking. They were blind. They didn't understand the spiritual truth. They were highly critical of Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus points out their hypocrisy. They were very judgmental, and they operated by a double standard. Only thing is, I just want to tell you this, and I know that this isn't easy for us, but I'm going to tell you that there's a little of the Pharisee in every single one of us this morning. And it got quiet, and I expected it to get quiet when I made that statement. If you can accept that, you're on your way to seeing that less and less true in your life easy for us to point at the Pharisees and not realize that if we're not careful, three fingers are coming right back at us. We have to be open and honest enough to ask ourselves, do we do the same thing? Do we do the very same thing that we accuse these Pharisees of doing? And so this thrust is also to disciples because the Sermon on the Mount was given to disciples and we find that in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6, but in the nearer context, verse 40, it mentions disciples again. So we know that a lot of the thrust here, while it, does, while it still has its application to lost people, a lot of this thrust is to Christian folk, as we might say it, that we have this in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you compare this language to Matthew chapter 7, where Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount is, it's very similar. It's almost identical. And I don't know if you remember it or not, but back a number of weeks when we were relatively early in this series, I preached from Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And it was one of those penetrating questions of Jesus. And the question was, why are you judging others? Folks, I tell you, the more I think about this, the more I think that's not really my calling to judge other people. I can't see their hearts. We're going to actually deal with this question a lot more thoroughly next time. It won't be next Sunday, but when we come to verse 46, the next message in this series follows right on the heels of this, almost like two sides to a coin. But the, if I counted, I don't have enough fingers to count the number of times I've caught myself doing exactly this. I wonder if you can think of a few where I've been quick to find fault with someone else, quick to find a problem in the life of someone else, 
only to realize that I either had something else or was doing exactly what I shouldn't be doing and all of a sudden woke up to that and realized this is not right. And this is what he's talking about here. It's not just lost people who are blind, but sometimes Christians can be blinded as well. What is it that clouds our perception to the point that we don't see our own hypocrisy? And I'll tell you the answer to that is ultimately pride. This is why I have to say to you, I, I can't be true to God's word and not say this to you, that there's a little bit of the Pharisee in each of us. Because each of us still has a sin nature, am I right? And sin is so sinister, sin is so subtle, that the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. And we need that kind of preaching to keep bringing us back to that truth and keep bringing us back to that truth because since we have a fallen nature, we like to think of ourselves as better and better and better. I've been a Christian all these years and we like to think of ourselves and know we might be progressing in grace. We might not be what we once were. All of that is true. But pride is insidious. It wraps itself around sometimes even the purest of things that we try to do. And the first thing you know, we find ourselves in this same situation. It's, it's a little bit like this. James gives an illustration of it, so maybe this will help us to see what I'm trying to get at. James says, you know, you're supposed to be not just a hearer of the word, but a what? A doer. Now, he gives an illustration to try to bring home the fallacy of a person who just comes and listens and makes no application to himself and just thinks it's the guy next door that the preacher was preaching to. And how often do we do that? He says, like a guy who beholds his natural face in the glass. Now, I tell you, I'm a man, so I won't venture for women. But here's how I think about that. I think about get up in the morning, I don't look in the mirror first thing. That's probably a mercy. That's probably one of those mercies anew. But I just, I get out there to the living room and, and I get to the coffee maker and, and I get all that stuff going and, and then I go and get my Bible and start. Well, but sooner or later I have to do it. I have to leave the house. Can't be in my bathrobe all day long. Got to come to work. So I go in there and I look. Hair going this way, hair going that way. What I have still. Look like I slept on it all night long. And you look at that and you say, whoo, I got some work to do before I can go to work this morning. So I go in and wash my hair, come back, comb it so it doesn't dry the wrong way. Then I, I do what I hate to do every day. I, this has to be part of the fall. I hate to shave. I, just, I hate to shave as much as Dave Kornauer hates a tie. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate a tie as much as I hate to shave. I just don't like to shave. I finally got my wife to get razors on the new ones on the cycle, I think they need to come so I don't cut myself about every other time. But he says, James says like this, you see that thing first thing and you say, oh man, I got some work to do. All of a sudden the phone rings. I did it this morning, but not quite as bad as I'm portraying it. I showed up down here at church and I haven't done this. I don't think I have ever done this before, but I did it today. Maybe it was because it needed to be an illustration. I came down here to church and I, did, I forgot to put my contacts in. I have my glasses on. That's all right. I mean, you see me in glasses all the time. It's not like I'm vain. I just like my contacts for a preaching service like this. And I said, hokey, Joe, I've got glasses on. And I thought for a minute, well, who cares? I mean, it's, I see out of them. 
People have seen me in them before, no big whoop. They'll know it's not a guest speaker. (laughs) I just got busy. That's what the problem was. I got busy with stuff and forgot. I didn't lay them out the night before. I usually get that stuff out the night before, so don't do that. So the phone rings, and you go away, and first thing you know, you've walked out the door, and you don't realize. My wife gets on me for this sometimes. Sometimes I'll walk out there with a bathrobe or sound like some folks just go to Walmart that way. <laughs> I might go to the mailbox that way and she gets worried the neighbors are going to see you. You know, I mean, we do that, right? Sometimes that happens and we can end up, James says, you don't get any blessing then. You're, you're a hearer but not a doer and you've forgotten what you need to remember about yourself. And folks, this is all I'm saying to you this morning. The only way to knock this problem down is to keep reminding yourself who you really are and what you really are because that's the way pride is it just it's there when you wake up every day it's with you every morning it'll wrap itself around some of the best things you're trying to do and twist that in such a way that the first thing you know you put yourself up on this promontory from which you look down and see others and find all the things that are wrong about their life all the while you feel good about this because you're better than that and we don't realize what we're doing. Of course, we're easy and quick to point to this problem in the world, and the world is certainly out there. I thought you might be interested in a little story that I came across along this line, and it was about a, a farmer who had a burden for, I'm sorry, it was a, it was a Christian man who had a, a burden for the particular farmer. Farmer was a lost man, and so the farmer or the Christian went to the farmer and he finally had kind of worked up the nerve to try to witness to him and he, he invited him to church. And the farmer started right in. He said, you've got to, I'm, I'm oh, I know so-and-so goes to that church. And I know so-and-so that goes to that church. And he's as bad as I am or I'm as good as they are. And everywhere, the farmer went around and talked about all the hypocrites that were at this particular church. Well, a number of months passed, and finally the Christian decided to go back to see the farmer, take a little different approach. And he went to the farmer, he said, I'd like to buy a hog. The man said, well, you've come to the right place. And he showed him all his pigs, nice ones, you know, like you're going to see at the fair if you go. Oh, the nice ones that win prize, all that kind of stuff. And he kept looking and kept looking, and it was kind of like Saul's sons, you know, he got to, it was kind of like Jesse's sons. So kind of, Samuel kept looking there and said, no, it didn't him. He's tall, strapping, he's a soldier, he's in the army. No, it isn't him. Got down to the next side, no, it's not him. No, it isn't him. Don't you have any other sons here? Well, there's the one guy, he's young, he's out there in the fields, he's a shepherd, get him. Something's wrong, we don't have the right guy yet. So he kept looking at the pigs, finally he got down to the end, and the runt was there. Farmer said, that's the one I want. Guy said, no, you don't want that. He said, that's the runt. He said, yep, that's the one I want. He said, all right, we'll, we'll put that one in the truck. So he got the pig in the truck, and he said, now, he said, uh, this good pig you just sold me, he said, I'm going to go all around here and tell people that this is the kind of pigs you raise on your farm. Farmer looked at him and said, you can't do that. He said, that's not fair. He said, I have some nice hogs here, and you want to show people the runt? And the Christian said, if it's fair for the church, it's fair for the farm. 
So we have to watch ourselves because even though that was a story from someone who was lost, many times it happens and we're guilty of the same thing. So I want to match that with a different story. This is a story about Bill. Now, I think this story is very well suited to our church, and I hope you won't be offended when I say this. But Bill was a guy with wild hair. He wore a t-shirt with, hole, with holes in it, jeans, and not typically shoes, didn't typically wear shoes. That was his wardrobe through all of college. Somewhere in there, in the, those years of college, he became a Christian. Well, it's kind of interesting that across the campus was a church, an evangelical church, Bible-believing church, and they had kind of gotten interested in how they could have an outreach to the college over there and how they could have a, try to, to have a ministry with some of the students there. Well, one day, Bill decided he'd go to that church over there across from the campus. He just, it was there, so in he walked. Holy T-shirt, not like what we sang about earlier. Holy T-shirt, jeans, hair going every which way, no shoes. Well, he walked in the back door. That church had a center aisle. He walked in the back, and he looked around. It didn't seem like there was very much place to sit. The place had a good crowd that morning, so he started up the aisle looking for a seat. So we have ushers here, four fellows, just saying. He started up the aisle looking for a seat. He couldn't see a seat, so he kept going further and further, closer and closer to the pulpit, and you could just sense the tenseness that came over the room. Everybody got quiet. They were looking at this guy. Okay, Joe, what are we going to do with this guy? What's he doing? Finally, he got up about where that second pew is, and he just sat down on the floor. He couldn't find a seat. He just sat down on the floor. Everybody was looking. There was, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in the church. Finally, an old man in his 80s in the back of the church got up. He had a three-piece suit. He had a gold watch. He was pocket watch. He was sort of a, had a, a stateliness to him, just a, 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 a manner. And he started to, he grabbed his cane. He walked slowly. He started down the aisle towards where Bill was. And you could just sort of hear the little ripple around the church as people kind of thought to themselves, well, what can you expect from a man of his age and background is a college kid like that. Well, it took a while for the aged man, happened to be a deacon in the church, to get all the way down the aisle. Everybody was watching him. The church was utterly silent. The minister couldn't even begin to preach his message because of what was transpiring before them. Right about the time the old man reached the front and people were tense as to what he was going to do, he did something they never expected. It was painful and it was slow. But he sat down on the floor right next to Bill, the college student. The pastor had this to say once he gained control of himself. He said, what I am about to preach you will never remember. What you have just seen you will never forget. Aren't we all a little bit like that? Don't we all have a little bit of the Pharisee in us? 
Are not we all somewhat tinged with hypocrisy? I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just telling you what I know is true. It's true of me. It's true of you. And I think that verse, I don't know what you do, but, and I'm getting low on time here, but I'm, I want to tell you some of my own personal tonics that I've tried to use for years. I couldn't tell you the number of mornings that I've started out my prayers with Romans seven nineteen. I just hope you get this lesson. You don't have to use Romans 7, 19, but go get you something that works for you. That's the verse where Paul says, for I know, I know, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. It's just a good tonic to start your prayers with. It just sort of sets me straight where I am and who I am, and what I am. And I was having the devotions with the teachers recently, and I shared one that I came across. I wonder if you would turn to the book of Job, because this was a real blessing to me. I mean, you know, when you get a real blessing from Job, you put that one on the calendar, right? Sometimes you read through there, and these guys wax eloquent. I'm in Job 34, and you just kind of wonder, okay, I read my chapters. What in the world do I get out of this? What's going on? with what these guys are saying. And you get to the end of the book and you have this kind of puzzling character by the name of Elihu. And he gets pretty windy at times, to be sure. He's rather verbose, but he comes up with something here in verse 31 and 32. It hit me the other day. It's a great prayer. He says this, Surely it is me, that it is, it's right, it's fitting. To be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. Okay, Lord, you got through to me. I hear. The next verse, that which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Man, I can't think of a better way to get it right there, folks. That which I see not, teach thou me. I want to know. I want to know what I don't see that I need to see about me. Something to think about. Here's our last thought. We do need to heed the warning. There is a warning that Jesus gives. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. You can't mistake this for what it is. Everybody knows this is the passage in which Jesus delivers a scathing, absolutely scathing rebuke to the Pharisees. And he uses this blind blindness in that first 16 of Matthew 23. Woe unto you, he says, ye blind guides, which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is debtor. See the double standard, see the hypocrisy. He has it again in the next verse. He fools and blind. For whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Drop down to verse 19. Ye fools and blind. For whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Verse 24. Ye blind guides, which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Verse 26. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter that the outside of them may be clean also. 
So there is a warning that Jesus gives. It's a warning of judgment because when he said, the blind lead the blind and both fall into the ditch, that's spiritual calamity to fall in the ditch. You drive your car in the ditch, you've got a calamity. You're not going to get it out without help. It's spiritual calamity that he's talking about. When Jesus pronounces a woe, that is spiritual judgment and calamity. And if you would turn with me to the last place, John chapter 9, here's the story of the man born blind. From the beginning of the world, it says in verse 32, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? And in verse 39, Jesus speaks of judgment. Jesus said, for judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. And here are the Pharisees again. Some of them were offended before. Remember in Matthew 15 when we saw this? These guys, you know, you don't see the heart, but they're on the right track. They say to Jesus, when they heard these words, are we blind also? Now, you don't know the tone of their voice. You don't know if they were offended or were they on the right track. Did they hear what Jesus was saying and kind of begin to get the message and begin to become concerned? Are we blind too? And Jesus says to them in verse 41, If ye were blind, ye would have no sin, but now ye say we see. Therefore your sin remaineth. There's not much hope for a person that isn't willing to acknowledge he's blind. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. But there's hope. Since the world began, it was not heard that someone opened the eyes of the blind. But Jesus did. Jesus can. You know, even in today's society, folks, if you think about this, we a lot we can do. I hear folks about getting these shots in their eyes, and I, Ooh. and the Sunday school class I attend, it's about every other week somebody's got cataracts. I keep thinking about that and keep thinking, especially when I go once a year to Dr. Petitsis and he says, it's not doing anything, and I'm saying, that's good. Let it do nothing. Let it not grow. I'm content. Let it be there and not do anything. I, I, you know, they shoot that laser beam in your eye and okay, but I'm good. There's hope. There was hope that day I saw it. Not because I saw it, but because the Holy Spirit worked. There was hope then. There was a light shining in a dark place that beckoned. And as sight began to form in our eyes, we saw that light, though it was from afar, and though at first we saw it dimly, we saw that light, it was a ray of hope. By the Holy Spirit, we were drawn to that light, to a greater and increasing light, until in fullness of day, we saw ourselves for the sinners, the bankrupt sinners that we are, and saw him, in all of his glory and in all of his righteousness and in all of his holiness and knew that that could be given to us by pure grace. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is hope. And I don't know how it ended for those Pharisees. But I know there's hope. There's hope for anybody that really wants to know because Jesus promised, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. And there was a day when Jesus was en route to Jericho. The Bible tells us in the 10th chapter of Mark about this story, but huge, huge multitudes followed Jesus. Undoubtedly, they knew of his fame. Undoubtedly, some of them had been healed by him. And was Jesus passed by the way, a voice rang out, Jesus! Jesus! Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they looked to see. And it was a blind man. Along the wayside in filthy rags. He was a beggar, the Bible tells us. And all the people that were near to him said, Shh, 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 Because surely God must have more important things to do. There must be more important people than a smelly, dirty, blind beggar. When all of a sudden the crowd stopped. And all of those people that were by that man who had been telling him to shush, now all of a sudden they change clothes entirely and say, Oh, be of good comfort. He calleth for thee as if they were on his side from the beginning. And the blind man, the Bible tells us, got up and tossed those rags to one side and made his way to Jesus. And when he got close, Jesus said to him, what is it you want from me? What is it you want me to do for you? He said, Lord Jesus, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made me thee whole. But if you look in the account, you'll find something truly interesting. He didn't go his way. He says immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. There is hope. There is hope when you see the blindness, when you see the need. And it's a miracle, is it not, that in a multitude of people and all the rabble and noise of the crowd, that somehow the ears of the Son of God are always in tune, always hear the the prayer that says, Have mercy on me, thou Son of David. It seems like no matter what the din, no matter how loud the noise, it seems like the Son of God has ears that can always hear a cry for mercy that comes from a blind man. There is hope. So there are things for us to consider today. If we're here and we don't know Jesus as personal Savior, The judgment of God's word is 
not unkind in its truthfulness. Only to confront us with our true need. Only to make us aware of our spiritual condition that we might find his mercy. And even for those of us who are Christians, who can sense at times the rising tide of hypocrisy and Phariseeism in our own lives and desire to knock that down. There is hope because there is mercy. And if you're here this morning and God is speaking to your heart in some particular way, you just proved my point. 